Uh, can I just kick off and ask you a question? You don't need to answer it out loud or anything like that. But my question for you is that I want you to be thinking about the whole time through uh, this talk. The question that I'd like you to think about is, are you committed to personal change? I'm not talking about changing your, you know, body by waking up early and going to the gym and lifting weights and hoping you don't drop them on yourselves. I'm not talking about dieting and getting fit and healthy. I'm not talking about changing the paint color on your house. I'm not talking about changing or rotating the tires on your car. I'm talking about changing you. Are you committed to personal change? Because as Christians, we believe in this thing called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What makes it good is that we understand that Jesus Christ on the cross there in the first century broke the power of sin. But the presence of sin is still here. Now, it progressively retreats. And the analogy I like to think of is uh, D-Day. You know, when the Allies landed there, the war was won. But there was killing, there was fighting, there was pain, and there was loss. But, but the war was won. The victory was secured. The power was there. It just was pushing it back. And that's kind of like what happened on the cross. The victory and the power was established over death, hell, and the grave. But the presence of sin is still with us. And it retreats for the Christian in our lives, the older and we, we get and the longer we walk with the Lord. And so we should be a people committed to change. It is, it is who we are as Christians. On the 28th of February, 2022, if you happen to be sitting here, I hope you are different. And if you're not, then you have to perhaps recheck your answer to that question. Are you committed to personal change? And that brings us to this text here of Psalm 51 that uh, Dan read out for us. I've titled this talk, Gracefully Broken. There's going to be a single slide on the screen with an outline. Uh, a lot of C's, just be ready for it. Um, Gracefully Broken, Psalm 51. Now, I've titled it Gracefully Broken. You might be wondering, why on earth would I title it that? Grace is this idea of undeserved favor. So to be full of grace is to be full or, or shown, full of undeserved favor, to be shown undeserved favor. Broken means broken, hurt, damaged, out of action. By the way, uh, if, if you're missing the other week, I dropped a weight on my hand at the gym early in the morning. So this is broken, damaged, out of action. I haven't been able to lift with Dan and the poor guy's going a little solo there. Brokenness is spiritually smashed in the context of Psalm 51. It is contrite. It is penitent. It is repentant. It has been said that if repentance is this idea of driving down a highway and then having a change in heart that leads to a change in behavior so that you get on the other side and you drive back the other way, if that is repentance, brokenness is the off-ramp. Brokenness is the place where we slow down. Brokenness is the place where God stops us. Brokenness is the place where we come to when we realize we need to change. Brokenness 
is the prerequisite for change. And if the Christian life is marked by progressive change, then those moments of brokenness in your life and in my life are graceful, are full of grace. They are moments of favour that reorient us back to that victory that was won in the first century there with Jesus on the cross. But these moments of brokenness, they can be very, very, very painful. Emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically, far more than just physically. Anyone who knows me knows uh, that I am, how shall we say, accident prone. <laughs> I've actually given a good round of hospital visits to a couple of friends here already who've had to take me through. Um, I'm presently sporting my sixth orthopedic surgery. The irony is I come from uh, a family of health professionals. My mother is a nurse, my father is a doctor, my wife is a doctor. I don't usually have to sit there for too long in the waiting room of the GP. Growing up, I had all sorts of weird and wonderful accidents, shall we say. Uh, But my first serious accident was uh, my second day of uni back there in 2006. Uh, I'm not trying to be a role model, but I, I took, took the second day off class, shall we say. I, I just skipped the second day of class to go ride dirt bikes out in a quarry towards Warners Bay. And I was doing some dirt jumps, was feeling pretty good about myself, and then I, I, I just washed out, rolled down a little bit of a hill, and uh, just trying to figure out what, what had happened. I just couldn't move for some reason, and I, and I thought, oh, my ankle's a bit sore, my wrist is a bit sore, but I'm okay. I still couldn't get up off the ground. And what had happened after, you know, to cut a, a longish story short, was I ended up snapping my wrist, kind of rotated around this way, compressed it four centimetres, and, and ended up with nine breaks in my wrist. And so I got taken to, um, you know, out that way. We just went to Beaumont uh, Hospital. And, I, hey, I'm, I come from a family of health professionals, so I don't normally go to the lineup. So what I did was I walked in and I thought I need a, um, an X-ray. So I look at the sign and I saw x-ray left and it was a quiet hospital. So I just walked to the, to the x-ray rating room and I sat down there and was waiting for my x-ray. And uh, waiting, waiting, waiting. I was wearing a glove. So my whole arm is ballooned at this point. This lady walks past who happened to be a nurse and she goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I, I suspected broken on, you know, suspected fracture and, and I think I need an x-ray. And she just nearly... Uh, fell back and said, you need to come with me. So, so she took me in and long story short, they cut off the glove and they had to act quickly before I lost my hand for the swelling and the, broke, the cut off circulation. And they rotated my wrist around and talk about physical pain. And then I got transferred to the John and three and a half hours later, I happened to have a, a hand surgeon on uh, who put it all back together. And it was really interesting because I'm sitting in there when I woke up in recovery and I said, what did it look like? I always kind of wondered if I was really made of bone inside. And, um, and he said, it was just a jigsaw puzzle. I had to put it back together. Now think about the logical progression of that little saga. I came off my motorbike, right? I was stopped. It hurt. I had to acknowledge that I had a problem, so I had to let others know about it and get taken to hospital. The surgeon had to open up my broken wrist. He had to do further damage, so to speak, in laying bare the extent of the damage I had caused myself. And then, when all the pieces were clear, laid out before him, and he could figure out what was going on, what was where, he started to put it back together again. 
And there was sawing, there was drilling, there was chiseling, there was stitching, there was rehab, there was scar tissue, there was pain medication, there was limited range of motion for the rest of my life, and I still bear the scar. You see, anecdotally, that is how we go about a change as a Christian. Brokenness brings the occasion for the change, but actual change is the healing of that brokenness. We do not want to stay wallowing in brokenness. Brokenness for brokenness' sake is hopeless. That is not the message. But brokenness is full of potential for change if we are willing to go through the change. And these steps are laid out here for us in Psalm 51, one of the classic texts in Scripture on sin concerning brokenness. Again, five points. I'm going to breeze through the first one real quick. So keep Psalm 51 open in front of you, but you may be uh, familiar with the story. Psalm uh, 51, the backdrop here is David and Bathsheba. There's actually seven penitent psalms, you know, talking about sin, Five of them that we know of are by David about this event. It's really interesting to go read the other ones all about it because you get so many more insights and I just wish I had more time to do that. But it begins here with the confrontation that we read about back in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. 2 Samuel 11, the story is, if you're not familiar with it, David is walking on his palace roof. In the cool of the evening, he's walking there and, he, and you know, it's the springtime and everyone's off at war. For some reason, David didn't go. And he's a warrior king. But he's back at home, you know, and the higher up in the ranks you get, the more privacy you get. So he's got like his own little balcony there and less people watching him, what he's doing. And he looks over to another roof and he sees another person who's on their roof, Bathsheba. She was bathing. And this man, David, had a lot of wives, but he wanted her. So he ends up taking her, and depending on your reading of the text, he rapes her, or he seduces her. I think there is more sway with the former interpretation. And then she comes knocking on his door not long later and says, I'm pregnant. David starts freaking out, thinking he needs to backtrack a little bit and cover up his tracks. You know, sin, on sin, on sin, on sin, on sin. I think everyone here could probably relate to that. Compounding of sin. So he tries to figure out something to get himself out of this mess. He goes to some of his generals, organizes the uh, military so that Uriah, the, wife, the husband of uh, Bathsheba, would be up the front in a particular skirmish and then they would withdraw the troops and he was cut down and he was killed and he gives him a, you know, an honorable uh, funeral. And then David marries Bathsheba, saves face. Hey, by the way, she's pregnant, but that's okay because we're married. Rape, murder, cover-up. 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 12 comes along, and with it, the prophet Nathan. Nathan was the prophet, the person as the mouthpiece of God for Israel at that time in history. Nathan comes up, and he starts talking to David, and he confronts David about his sin, and he tells him that God is aware of it. And he crumbles. He breaks and he falls apart. And that is the backdrop to what we see here in Psalm 51. So confrontation, now conviction. Look at what we read here in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. 
blot out my transgressions. In my study, I like to diagram, I like to color code and, and sort out what's going on on the page so that I can see patterns. And, oh, wow, there are so many patterns on this. If you'd like to see, I'm happy to share with you some of my notes later on. But um, what I found in this psalm was a single recurring theme, and it was so hard. Like, the psalms are not like, you know, Paul in the New Testament where it's ABC and, and you get a nice outline. This took a lot of work. <laughs> um, and it's cheesy, I know. Uh, but anyway, it, it was so hard to try and figure out how to break this out chronologically. So I'm going to be moving around a little bit here. But what you see straight up here is this reoccurring pattern. Three things. First, David sees God for who he is. Second, David sees his sin for what it is. Third, David sees himself for who he is. If we don't see ourselves as people who need to be washed and cleaned and renewed, it's because we don't see our sin for what it is. And if we don't see our sin for what it is, it's because we don't see God for who he is. Get the logic? Up and down, up and down, all day, every day, twice on Sunday. That happens here throughout the text on rotation. God, sin, self, self, sin, God. To deny God, then, is to deny yourself. And to deny yourself is to deny God. And what stands in between is this thing called sin. You know, a thousand years later, after David had written this, Israel was smashed, gone, divided, and we'll figure that out later on as we go this afternoon. Jesus comes along and he's teaching his disciples and he teaches them how to pray. And he says, our Father, he begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus was teaching us to enter into prayer with a certain attitude, a certain posture of heart, a certain humility that arises from seeing who God truly is. Prayer, true prayer, is one of the ways that we reorient ourselves towards God. In the very act of prayer, one is humbling themselves with a broken spirit and a contrite heart by virtue of the fact that they are recognizing that they need to reach beyond themselves and talk to somebody else, namely God. David knew this. He was convicted in his brokenness to cry out to God. He had come to the end of himself, so he cries, following that template, even though it was a thousand years before, saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, the greatness of your compassion. Hallowed be your name. Your he's appealing to the attributes of God. He knows who he's talking to. He has a posture of who he is. He knows the God it is that he's speaking to. He's convicted of his sin. He owns it. Look here at what it says in verse 4. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice David doesn't say against Uriah, I have sinned. The man he killed. Against Bathsheba, I have sinned. The man he raped. Against my family, I have sinned, for whom the sword never left Against Israel I have sinned, which was divided after this. Why? Why does God say against you and you alone? Why does David say against you and you alone, God, have I sinned? Because David sees who God is. Let's not misunderstand this. David is not minimizing what he did to Uriah. David is not minimizing what he did to Bathsheba, to his family or to Israel. He is recognizing what makes evil evil. What makes sin, sin, and it is that it is against a holy and righteous 
God, because after all, who decides what is righteous? Who decides what is holy? Who decides what is good? Who decides what is evil? Who decides that certain sexual activity is appropriate and other ones aren't? Because we aren't talking about rape in the animal kingdom. Who decides that life is sacred? Because we aren't talking about murder when a lion tears the throat out of a zebra in the plains of Africa. What's going on here? One of our news articles reads about the importance of late-term abortions and choice. Some fringes even arguing that we need to be going for post-birth abortions, while in another news article we'll be reading about double, double manslaughter that somebody's gone to prison for because they were drunk and they ran into a pregnant lady on the sidewalk killing her and her child. One is murder, one is one is manslaughter and one is murder and choice what's going on what is this inconsistency who draws the borders of sanctity around life around sexual expression how do we be consistent we be consistent by starting with who god is mark 10:18 no one is good except god you don't minimize your sin when you take it to god and ask him for forgiveness you actually secure the dignity of the person you have offended by going to God. I'm not saying you don't go to them, absolutely go to them, but I'm saying if you're not doing business with God, what you're doing sideways, horizontally, it's got no anchor, it's got no root, it's got no ground, soil. God is good. We are made in his image. That is why sexuality and life is sacred and inviolable. Again, to deny God is to deny yourself, your dignity and your value. So in declaring his sin against God and God alone, David isn't minimizing what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah and to others. He's elevating the seriousness to the point of infinity, and that is damning to the point of infinity as well. Because if you sin against the holy and righteous God who is eternal, you're not talking about a proportionality to the person you hurt anymore. You're talking about an offense to that kind of being you know when we're convicted of sin we tend to respond in one of four ways and i'm sorry i'm doing the c's thing again we tend to complain that's one of the first easier responses or we tend to compare or we tend to cover it up or we confess complain compare cover it up confess the kind of knee-jerk reaction to most, I think, is to complain, right? I mean, you're confronted with sin in your life, and the response is, yeah, well, you know what, you just, you just don't, like, they just don't understand what I'm going through. They don't get it. They have no clue what it's like to have a newborn baby. They don't have, you, you do not know my wife and what I've been going through, or you don't know my husband and what he is like. You, you don't know my parents. Do you understand, seriously, like, you would not be, having a crack at me right now if you truly knew the situation that I was trying to deal with at home. So stop, you know, take the log out of your own eye and we do that whole reverse kind of Christianese verse throwing at each other. If only I had this, I would be okay. You don't get the stress I'm under. You don't get the anxiety. You don't, do you understand what I'm going through before you start picking up those stones and throwing them? You're complaining about the fact that somebody's confronted you. You're complaining about Nathan. 
You see, we, we have a tendency not to own our own sin. Complaining deflects the problem and puts it back out there on somebody else. Hey, we're happy to confess the sin of other people. But we like to deflect the sin of ourselves. Complaining is a conviction of the sin of others because it gets the focus off of our own brokenness. Another reaction is to play the comparison game. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did something. Uh, you, you would have heard about uh, the late Ravi Zacharias and things that came out in the media with him. Uh, so I, my wife and I packed up. We moved overseas to study underneath some of his team members at the Zacharias Trust there at Oxford. Uh, we got back peak COVID uh, due to COVID uh, before the borders shut. And so it kind of came to a grinding halt, but our time was wonderful. Uh, anyway, our inspiration for going there, our passion was because of Ravi Zacharias. That was, that's what brought 16 of us together from 14 different countries there in Oxford. And we had a wonderful time. Admittedly, we only saw Ravi for uh, one of the days. Uh, but my wife and I had spent previous time with him and chatted with him about things as well. He passed away. Uh, coronavirus happens. Ravi dies. We come back to Australia. It's like, whoa, that was big. And then in September, news started to leak about sexual misconduct. And 23 December, an interim report was released by an independent law firm who's doing an investigation saying, yeah, wow, uh, we have uncovered abuse and it is actually worse in some degrees to what has been publicly reported. And then, I think it was early February, the final report came out, 12 pages, and it was damning. And I came to church, uh, sorry, that was, yeah, that was midweek, so I worked, continued to work, and then Saturday night I, I couldn't really sleep, so I said to Julie, I just got to get, write some stuff out, and it was about nine o'clock, I finished typing at 8 a.m., and went and picked up my little boy, who was uh, awake, and come, came to church that afternoon, and went back home. What I did before um, is I had released on to my Facebook page a letter. I'd written an open letter. The reason why I was up all night writing is because I was really bothered by the fact that I was reading so many posts by Christians online who were playing the comparison game with the sin. They were just ticking every box here. They kept on saying, well, look at David, you know, David sinned. Why are we comparing our sin proportionally to somebody like David? And if you look at David, guess, guess what he's going to do? He's going to say, against you and you only, God, David's going to point you to God. If you're going to look at David, why don't we look at Joseph, who actually fled? But if you're going to look at Joseph, who was still a sinner, he had massive problems. Why aren't you looking at Jesus and what he paid for on that cross? And that bothered me. So I wrote an article and that went online and that kind of just went, got traction beyond what I thought it would. We have a tendency to try and compare our sin with others. A third one, a uh, fourth one is, sorry, a third one is covering it up. This is straight up denial. Jesus said, the healthy don't need a doctor, I've come for the sick. So if you're not broken, you don't need to be fixed. But if you are broken and you're pretending like you're not, well, you are amputating yourself from the only source that can actually bring wholeness and reconciliation and restoration to you. Brokenness for brokenness sake is a terrifying thing. It is hopeless. It is pain without purpose. 
And it's frankly ineffective because you aren't fooling anyone. I mean, we see this in the Garden of Eden, do we not? Genesis chapter 3. All of these things come together, complaining, comparing, covering up. The woman you gave to me, said Adam. Well, it it was actually that serpent, said Eve. Because, you know, that serpent was there telling us that if we compare ourselves to you, we could be like God. And What did they do? They tried to cover it up. They went and sewed some leaves together because they were naked and they were ashamed. And how did that work out for them? God comes along and he recognizes that they're naked and he clothed them with skins. They didn't even do a good job. Here's a a Bible verse to Mark. And if it doesn't put the fear of God in you, I don't know why you're here. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you don't see God for who he is, you're not going to get any of your sin for what it is and how far short it falls of who he is complaining comparing covering up it's self-atoning externalism it's always looking out there at the problem over there in you guys it's never owning it like david does here that's what he says verse 5 behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in my in, in sin my mother conceived me how's this for a hard reality check the biggest problem you have in the world is you you bring sin into this world by virtue of you being born you bring your problems into these relationships that you're struggling with from our mother's womb we bring sin into the equation the problem comes from you The problem comes from me. I'm using myself in the you there, just to clarify. We bring the problem. We are the biggest problem. So when you're having that argument with your spouse, the problem is not your wife. The problem is that Jesus Christ is not magnificent enough to you and you will not worship him. And the same goes for the other spouse. The same goes for the person who is complaining about that boss at work. I'm not saying there aren't difficult people beyond ourselves. Of course there are. I'm saying if we only see the problem out there and we fail to recognize the problem in here, we do not get our sin. And I mean to say this as gently as I can. This even goes for those who have been grievously harmed by other people. Because if that person who harmed you, and people can do horrible things to other people, if that person who harmed you never existed, you would still have a lot of problems. And if that makes you angry because you think it is minimizing the injury that was done to you, just remember that if you don't appreciate what your sin is before holy and righteous God, you are actually minimizing the hurt that was done to you. Our sin is what it is because it is vertical first before it is horizontal. It is against a holy and righteous God. 
I don't want to (laughs) be that preacher. Um, But this is Psalm 51. And if you can't talk about sin in Psalm 51, you should not be preaching full stop. And by the way, this is my testimony. David Dean's testimony. Different David. Very different David. Uh, I said earlier that I was accident prone. Well, part of the reason is because I grew up trying to always be somebody I wasn't. I was kind of like a big fish in a little pond growing up in this place called Gunnedah. It wasn't that hard. It's a pretty small town. Uh, and then as I was, you know, competing, sporting, it was doing great, life was good, went off to boarding school and became an insignificant Nemo in an ocean. And all of a sudden, my soccer abilities were not that good. And so I was trying to measure up, I was trying to perform, uh, and I ended up telling some people what I thought of them and ended up getting a really hard time as a result for basically the rest of my boarding school. I got bullied terribly for 18 months. And I made the commitment, I was like, you know what, stuff this. I'm not here to make friends, I'm going to study, I'm going to do as best as I can, I'm going to bail. To this day, I don't actually talk to anyone that I went to school with. But it was tough. I did not know how to handle, handle my anger. I didn't understand what was going on in myself. I just knew I had a lot of rage and I didn't know how to deal with it. I could feel it like a like cool water going through my veins. And so I got in fights. And then I got told, basically, if you do any more of this, you're gone. And I knew that would upset my parents. So I didn't know how to let that anger go. So I started taking stuff. I started stealing stuff. I didn't really want it. Um, like I would just do things to really annoy people like I'd find their keys and I'd just throw them in the bin like half a block away on the boarding school because I didn't know how else to hurt them and I had so much anger inside and yes this is where I dove into pornography and at first it was curiosity after a while it became an escape a, a place that I could just dull all of this other stuff that was confusing to me and so I go through grade 12 and I leave that and I go to Newcastle University to study engineering and I'm like I'm never ever going to be treated like that again fresh start here we go rock and roll Mr. Cool two years drunk on campus two years you know the Cadbury award easiest to get boozed and this whole time I was thinking at at university, you know, this just isn't really all it's cracked up to be. It's a little bit hollow, a little bit empty. And I didn't realize how filling my head with pornography and all of the insecurities that were established there in my younger years were still just damaging the way I saw everything. Anyway, I was still Mr. Christian when I needed to be. And so Gunnedah Youth Group was going away on a camp. And so this is now at the end of my second year of university. I go on this camp as the Christian youth leader from Gunnedah. Nobody knew what I was doing at Newcastle, so that was cool. And there we are at KYLC, 2007, the Katoomba Convention. And I get up early with a boy, you know, room cabin full of boys to go do my quiet time at 6am to set a good example. And I got out there to the lookout just up the road a little bit and I'm sitting there just like what am I doing here it's cold looked at Ephesians I was bored the first chapter was boring first chapter is great by the way but the first chapter bored me then second chapter third chapter four the fifth chapter something hooked me Ephesians 5 11 do not live like the pagans do live as a child of the light and it clicked 
I'm a Christian around my Christian friends and I'm a non-Christian around my non-Christian friends. I was duplicitous. I did not take sin seriously. Now, the sky didn't rip open, I didn't hear an audible voice and my life just wasn't melted and transformed right there. What happened was I had a sensitivity to sin and that sensitivity has increased and increased and increased. So now when I try and get away with stuff, it agitates me to no end that I don't get away with it for very long. (laughs) Talk to my wife. But what I didn't realise then, and I wish somebody had told me now, and honestly I was terrified when I realised that I was having a boy, because I knew I'd have to go through all of that crap with him. I know girls have their dramas. I'm just, I can identify with blokes. I was quiet on the bus on the way home from that ultrasound because it freaked me out knowing I'd have to deal with some of this stuff with my little boy and I didn't want to have to go through that. But as I'm there processing this, I came to the realisation that with my son, at least I could have a chance to try and educate him and and re-encourage a healthy view of some of this stuff one of which was telling him what i'd never heard at that age and that is that the the decisions you make as a teenager when you go through puberty and you're figuring out some of this stuff for yourself and it's all exciting and you don't know how to check your feelings i remember thinking consciously at the time you know what this isn't it's, it's okay it's not my spouse they are like arrows that get launched only to come down and nail you later on So let's fast forward to today. I'm down there, Australia Day 2021. It was a war zone at the beach. Because of what I was seeing. Now, it's not easy, I guess, for most people when they're seeing other people with not many clothes on. (laughs) But for me in particular, and I can only speak from my experience, but for me in particular... I've actually had rewiring done because I've watched pornography. This stuff messes with your brain. If you don't believe it, you need to do some reading and I'm happy to to, to send you some resources. It changes the way you think. You don't see things in a healthy way. And so I came away from that beach and got in touch with the bloke that I keep accountable with and my wife. And I just confessed because I needed to get it out of me. And bringing it out into the light changed, changed the weight of the power of whatever that was over me at that time that was just like, oh my goodness, wow. Why am I telling you all of this? Because if we can't talk about sin in church, where are we going to talk about sin? If it's not here, where? What, what are we singing about when we sing Amazing Grace? What's so amazing about grace? if we don't have a sin problem. If you have a justification for every sin in your life, you have no need for the justification of Jesus Christ. And there is the door. We need to be willing to be vulnerable in church. We need to be willing to be honest. We need to take these verses seriously. Do you know how dangerous it is to to do what Terry does up here every week? when he preaches you expose yourself when you preach and that's just not a horizontal exposure it's a vertical exposure before god james says that teachers will be judged harshly because they should know better because they are the ones that are searching the scriptures they of all people should know that their sin is an affront against a holy and righteous god it is a terrifying thing for me to preach 
It was a terrifying thing for me to write that public letter that ended up getting published and all over the internet. Because there I am, right, talking about not platforming Christians while at the same time I'm getting the biggest platform of my life. There I am talking about somebody's sexual impropriety when, goodness, look at my sin. Let's not pretend that any of us are innocent in this. We have a sin problem that we need to be talking about. There are consequences to sin. Don't get me wrong. And sometimes those consequences remove you from service within the church context. There are consequences to sin. The truth can hurt. But if the truth can hurt, lies, you better believe it will destroy you to the point of death. So enough pretending, enough complaining, enough comparing, enough covering up. I do not want to be in a church of pretenders. I do not want to sit underneath the teaching of a pretender because I don't want to stay in bondage to my brokenness as a victim of my own problems. And that is what happens if we aren't willing to talk about church. I am speaking this to myself right now. Please hear me in this. (laughs) There is nobody here that is triggering me to be saying these things beyond my own awareness of my own sin. And by the way, living in brokenness for brokenness sake is, is what the world is going through right now. We live in a bizarre era of history, unique in like sociological history, where we have virtue in victimhood. We medicate ourselves, we medicate our brokenness with another dose of brokenness. Our new cultural currency is victimhood, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, language, microaggressions, virtue signaling, safe spaces, political, political, political correctness, social, social, social justice, most of which are neither correct or just. This is the triggered world, triggered Western world within which we happen to find ourselves today. What passes for intellectual superiority most of the times within universities is simply retrogressive resentment. But we call that intellectual superiority. We call that progressive. It's construction by deconstruction. There's some postmodern lingo for you if you're interested. And how's it working out for us? About as good as Adam and Eve. It's not. It's not working out for us. It's getting us nowhere because the leaves will never cover the nakedness and the shame is eating us out from inside as a society. I'm not saying that there aren't real psycho, social, racial, political, unequal, ethic, ethnic issues with which we must reckon in society. Absolutely not. I'm not denying many of the complaints. I'm saying that the answer to the complaint is not to be a victim and to glory in being a victim. Because here's what we know. Jesus Christ was the greatest victim the world has ever seen. As Stu prayed before, he who knew no sin became sin for us. You do not get a bigger victim than that. If anyone had the right to wallow in his victimhood, it was him. And he's on the cross, pierced and punctured through, held there on this crossbeam. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You want to know how you break the logical chain of unforgiveness or victimhood that's just think about the Arab-Israeli conflict. You know, they hit them, we hit them back, vice versa. 5,000 years that's been going on. You know how you stop that? You know how you stop being a victim? Forgiveness. If you, if you think vic- forgiveness is easy, <laughs> I need to do a whole talk on that. Please don't think I'm just being trivial here. And you know what? There may need to be serious counselling, serious 
professional intervention. I'm not minimizing trauma. But if that is not involved, taking the sin that has been done to you before the Lord, if that is not involved, you're never really going to be dealing with the issue. Forgiveness breaks the bondage of brokenness. God forgives us. We don't even know what we're doing. Complaining, comparing, covering up, we can sum all of this up as unrepentant sin. When we have unrepentant sin, we have secrets. When we have secrets, we do everything we can to conceal them. We get paranoid over time. That paranoia gives rise to fear. It gives rise to anxiety. And ultimately, we end up with a, a distorted view of reality. And we lash out at the nakedness of other people, forgetting the fact that we're standing there naked ourselves. This is why we're so happy to pick up those stones. It's literally what happened with David. Nathan confronts him, right? 2 Samuel 12. David was talking to him, uh, Nathan was talking to him about this story. You know, the rich man, the, the poor man, and the rich man stole the poor man's sheep and took him over for a party. And David probably had to deal with stuff like that all the time in the kingdom of Israel. And so he was like, are you kidding me? Who is this dude? He needs to be dragged out and he needs to pay back fourfold and we need to kill him. Now there was retribution within Mosaic law. If I steal your ox, then I have to give you an ox plus one other. Why? Because I actually deprived you of an ox. But look at David's response. He comes fourfold back and then let's kill him. That's not in the law. What's that all about? Uh, deflection. Let's crush them with some stones and not let anyone look at us. He didn't realize that the rich man was him because Nathan, those four words that just, you know, cut him off at the Achilles and thou art the man. Thou art the man. He didn't get it. He did not get it. And that friends, is why social justice is not so social. Because we are complaining about so many other people and we are forgetting to look at ourselves. Who is dealing out the justice? We call it hate speech. Who is defining the hate? Progression, whether individual or societal, does not occur when you put God out of the picture. Our world is looking to the future for a genesis problem with a first century solution in Jesus Christ. And until we figure this out, as a culture, we're always going to be wrestling with this stuff. And depending on your eschatology, we may never figure that out. C.S. Lewis put it like this. This is his personal testimony, by the way. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Atheism turns out to be simple, too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe, therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. David says, verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O Lord. And here is the answer of that justice that we all seek. So that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Sin is against God. God is the blameless judge. 
which means justice begins and ends with seeing our sin for what it is before a holy and righteous God. Give me a church with men and women who are open and honest and raw and authentic about their need of Jesus Christ because of the sins that they're struggling with. And I'll, I'll be there. Because you know what? That is so glorifying to Jesus because that brings an occasion for us to actually speak to one another about the victories that we have in Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life is one of change and you do not stay there if you are truly a blood-washed, born-again, a child of God. You will move through the trial. Therefore, Paul, 1 Corinthians, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Between the stands and the fall is take heed. Take heed. May we take heed this day lest we fall time. Wow. Confession. I began with that story uh, about my own fractured brokenness in 2006. Well, I had three great rounds of damage in uh, the first three years of university. The second year was when I was playing football and, uh, and I smashed my knee, I twisted it out and um, ACL meniscus damage. Uh, I didn't have anyone to call, so they called my friend who uh, came running down. And as the ambulance was there, it was pouring rain. It was dramatic. You could almost hear Hollywood soundtracks coming out of the clouds. As the lights are bouncing off now in the dark, bouncing off the trees in the rain, they, he saw from a distance running down there from college, he saw them pulling out a body bag. And he's like, I thought it was just a knee. And they were just shielding me from the rain. And then I go to, to, uh, to hospital. And I'm at hospital. And hey, I'm a smart little sinner because I'd learnt from the previous year. You see, I didn't say before that growing up in a, in a doctor's home, I was never allowed to ride motorbikes. So I was, you know, I actually have a card on my 12th birthday card, a picture of a motorbike, open it up, we love you, da 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 P.S. Never in your life ever own what's on the front cover of this card. Second day of uni, autonomy, motorbike, damage, upset father. Next year, I wasn't allowed to play football either. So now I'm playing football. Twist my knee, problems, get to hospital, smart little sinner. I'm not going to call mum and dad, you know. Who, who should we call? Not my parents. Call my sister in Sydney. So they call my sister, and guess what my sister does? She calls my parents. And so now they're calling my parents, and my parents are doubly freaked out, thinking, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Why didn't he just call? What's, what's actually up? The point is I didn't confess, right? And I actually made the problem significantly worse. I could have avoided all of that drama if I just shot straight and got on with it. But here we were. Confession is important. David comes before the Lord. He sees God for who he is. He sees his own sin for what it is. He sees himself for what he needs. And he doesn't complain. He doesn't compare. He doesn't cover up. He's confronted. He is convicted. He confesses. Look what he says here. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There are three powerful verbs and three interesting nouns attached with each one of these to build a really interesting word picture. Blot out, verb, my transgressions, noun. Wash my iniquity, cleanse my sin. Blot out, what does that mean? It's the same Hebrew word that was used in the flood of Noah. It means to obliterate. Purge me. Wash me. Scrub me. Get rid of it all. David's saying that about himself. What is it that he's getting rid of? What is it that he's calling to be purged? Transgressions. What's a transgression? 
We have aggression, we have digression, we have progression, we have regression. What is the aggression of all of these prefixed terms? Aggression <laughs> comes from the Latin and it means to step, to move forward. Depending on the prefix, modifies the meaning of the term. When we say transgression, we mean to actively step and move forward. It is to cross over. Trans-Atlantic, trans-Siberian, it is crossing, it is movement. So in contrast to, say, aggression, which may just be a, a posture or an attitude towards a line or a person, transgression has gone beyond. It's done, it's committed. The question isn't if there are consequences, the question is what are they? It's just like Julius Caesar there, 59 BC, I think, crossing the Rubicon, the River Rubicon, and he crosses, and bang, civil war, and Rome was an imperial empire. There are consequences when you transgress, when you trespass. And look at this second one, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me corresponds with the word iniquity. Iniquity is imbued with this idea of immorality. So that transgression is immoral, right? If we're stitching this all together. The washing here is literally a depicting of scrubbing. It is, it is like scrubbing a, a cloth, some linen, to get the dirt and the filth out of it. It is active dunking scrub, dunking scrub, smack, dunk scrub, like down at a river or something. That is the image of this washing that's going on here. And then David adds this other phrase. It sounds a little bit like that one. He says, cleanse, cleanse my sin. The, the word for cleanse here is a Hebrew word that is used for ceremonial cleansing, to make something clean and pure for religious use. Use. Unless we're cleansed in a certain way, we actually have no use. And all of this corresponds again with that noun of sin. And sin, in that Hebrew root word, has the idea of an archer missing its mark, falling short. But it's not just a falling short of, oh, ignorance or inability. Again, when you plug it in with all of those other things, you see that this is an intentional misdirection, an intentional misaim that falls short of God. If transgression is rebellion, if iniquity is moral impurity, sin is a spiritual inability to be anything other than an immoral outlaw in God's eternal economy. You know what makes sin so enticing? It's because it looks beautiful. It does, let's be honest. If it didn't, we wouldn't be attracted to it. Hebrews says, there are fleeting pleasures with sin. But that's what they are, because even the drunk has a hangover. We ought to be broken over our sin and brought to this place of confession with the recognition of what sin is and what it does to us so that we are like David, crying out to be washed, to be scrubbed, to be cleansed, to be made good for religious use. Sin stains you. Sin stains me. Every time we sin, we attach something new to ourselves. We absorb something new within us that wasn't there before. It is like a toxin that makes us sick. These stains can be familiar smells. These stains can be memories. These stains can be something that you've seen that you just can't get out of your head. These stains can be scars on your body that, you, that testify to some horror that happened to you. We create these memories in our mind. We create these snapshots. And like I said, they can neurologically rewire stuff in our heads. Sexual addiction, pornography, alcoholism, drug addiction, depression, personality disorders. These things don't just go away necessarily when you become a Christian. They can, but not necessarily necessarily. 
The majority of people know you come to the Lord and you still need to get some serious help for what you've gone through in your past. Why? I thought we just got cleaned. What are you talking about, David? Didn't we just have the whole scrubbing thing going away? Remember what we said at the beginning. Jesus has secured the victory over the power of sin and death, but there is still a lot of fighting going on. You are stained, and the stains are dulling with every passing year if you are walking with the Lord and there is change. But there are still stains on you. There are still stains on you. David said, my sin is ever before me. It was more than a year later when he said that. And his sin was ever before you, him. And that carries right on through his family line. I won't go through it, but it is terrible to see how like father, like son. Rape, murder, cover up. The fall of ancient Israel came after David's son Solomon. But it started on that roof when he looked over at Bathsheba. This is why confession is so important, because it brings the problem and puts it out on the table. It doesn't let the devil get a foothold in the darkness. I'm conscious of time, but I think this is important. Practically speaking, I don't think we should ever give up meeting with one another in church because of the significance of what we're talking about here. Fellowship and accountability is so important, but let's get good with our fellowship too. I've been in terrible... Sorry, let's get good with our accountability groups. I've been in terrible accountability groups for too long where we talk about our sin like a performance metric. And what are we doing there? We are measuring up to some external standard. Talk about what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Talk about the washing. Talk about how you've noticed that stain dull. Encourage one another. Be excited about the victories that you're having in Christ. If you're only ever looking at the problem, how do you think you're ever going to move forward to the answer? Look to the answer. Look to Jesus. Look to what he has secured in you and for you and through you. And be encouraged and encourage one another. And I'm happy to say that I'm doing that at the moment with a friend here right now listening to me as I speak. If we see God for who he is, or sin for what it is, and ourselves for who we are and what we need, we won't be finding excuses for the Sunday gathering. We won't have that soccer game on every single Sunday. We won't have that shift on every single Sunday. I'm not talking about the odd time. I'm talking about prioritization of meeting with the saints to combat sin in a community. May we own our sin for what it is. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we come from confrontation to conviction to confession to to consecration, to being made ready for spiritual use. And because of the time, I'm just going to dot point off the rest of this for you. Let me just read out from verse 6. Consecration. Behold, you desire truth in the inmost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken, God, rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities, creating me a clean heart, 
O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is where the change occurs. This is where brokenness gets put back together. Sin is not a problem out there. Sin is a problem only out there because it is first and foremost a problem in here. And what does God do? He gives us a new heart, a heart of Stone is taken out, it's heart surgery and a heart of flesh is put in and fleshy stuff grows, it changes, it doesn't rest content. There is nothing hidden here for David, he lays it bare. This innermost being, it's going through everything. Get it all out on the table. This is when the surgery can be done when it's out. Sin must be confessed at the heart of Christianity is a cross. It is the recognition of the fact that we have a problem with sin that we can't fix on our own. That's why God came into this world to take our sin for us to that tree. And listen to this. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he was not despised. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's just ticking the list down, Psalm 51. God transgressed, not in and of himself, with sin in, but he transgressed for the sake of us to bring us back. The judge who was blameless became the justifier who was blamed. He was conceived of a mother, he was, his body was broken, and on the cross, the God, the God the Father turned his face from him. God identified with us in his death so that we could identify with him in his life. And there are scars on his hand, and there are stains and scars on your life too even if you claim the blood of jesus christ because the war is still on the prince of the power of the air is still roaring but the victory is yours and so you can be confident and you can say no you actually have a new nature that says no but again we we support one another in that under the submission of the teaching of the word and as a community of believers here brokenness is a grace We are gracefully broken because it is an opportunity for the good news of Jesus Christ to remake us. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we don't have to live by the names we give ourselves. Ephesians 2.1, being in Christ means that a victim of abuse does not need to be defined by what has happened to them. And reciprocally, an abuser does not need to be defined by what they have done. We have a new name hidden in Christ. Jesus Christ is greater than any sin we have done. The commission here, the final point, is just really interesting because it then hinges out to all the practical stuff, which I'm not going to talk about for the sake of time. But it talks about basically when you get brokenness right, evangelism now starts, huh? Wow, that should shake up evangelists. Your evangelism starts with an evangelism of yourself. If you don't get your brokenness, 
If you don't get the message you're trying to preach to people, what the heck are you doing, evangel? Uh, Praise is the next application. We start to praise rightly. We start to sing. We start to rejoice. We start to work out how it is to move through life with stain and sins and brokenness still with that hope of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus never promises you the removal of suffering in this world. There is no tear in the eye in heaven. But what he promises you in this world is to make your suffering like his, oriented towards new and eternal life. There is a resurrection. You have a hope that allows you to get through the trial. It doesn't stop the trial. And why is that important? Again, evangelism. You can testify to the goodness of God in your life. People can look at you and see a change. That's why I'm not embarrassed to be talking to you about my little porn problem from years gone by that I have, that that mess with my head today still. Because I'm proud of what God has done in my life since I've come to know him. And I'm not boasting in me, please, wow. (laughs) No, I'm boasting in the fact that I need an accountability filter on my computer. But Jesus has changed so much in my life that I find myself writing an article about my hero who was living in unrepentant sin for so long. And that, that was a mind messer, I tell you. Praise, evangelism, praise. We become like the woman at the well. We just can't stop speaking. We become like the blind man who was walking and leaping and praising God. Your story, fill it in for yourself. And then finally, worship. This is so neat. David was under Mosaic law and he got it. He got it. He got it. Sacrifice. It was never about killing rams. It was never about killing sheep. It was always about the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love and the justice and the judgment of God himself. Our sin is against him. Amen. It was a broken spirit and a contrite heart that God desires, even in ancient Israel. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It has always been the same. So, finally, after that, you then have intercession. You can actually be useful. He prays for his people. The people he'd messed up, by the way, he prays for them. Look at Paul. Paul messed up people, and then he goes back to them when he becomes converted and asks them for offering for the famine in Jerusalem. You want to talk about humbling? He prays that God would build up the walls of Zion there in the last verse, build up the walls of Jerusalem. You can become useful when you're cleaned up. Who can ascend unto the hill? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24. The Christian life is characterized not by repentance. Sorry, the Christian life. The Christian life is characterized not by perfection, but by repentance. Not by subscription, but by submission. Not by achievement, but by grace. Not by me, but by Jesus. So again, I want to ask this question and then I'll stop. Thank you for your patience, by the way. Are you willing to change? Personally? Are you willing to be a different person here next week? I'll leave that with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, yeah, we just... Hallowed be your name. You're gracious, you're loving, you're merciful, you're kind, you're good, you're holy, you're righteous name. Father, I pray that we here would take heed, that we would take heed of this story of David, that we would learn of his sins, that we would learn of his brokenness when confronted by them, 
that when the, the fleeting pleasures of sin look beautiful, Lord, that we may find in you what is true beauty, that we would find something more beautiful, the beauty of you, the beauty of who you are and what you've done, for you are the only God worthy of a name because you're the only God with scars on your hands. You were scarred by our sin and our name is written on your hands and with that security, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, may we as a church here, a humble little church, stand out as a people who are real and honest and raw about our sin, not for the purpose of becoming a victim of it, but for the purpose of overcoming it in the name and the victory and the power and the person of Jesus Christ. Do good to Zion here. Build up the walls and put us to work with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And may your name be praised in this city. Amen.